What's up, everyone? This is episode 260 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my ex account is at Wax Museum PC. All right, well, the NBA world is coming off its annual All Star weekend. Obviously, I was a little more excited about this year's version, seeing as it was held in Indianapolis. I know at some point on Thursday, uh, this is before the All-Star game, I saw posts from former Pacers like Rick Smits and Ron Artest, and they were announcing their arrival to the Circle City, and I realized pretty quickly I probably made a mistake in not going. I could have just taken a flight up there, I would have had a place to stay, it wouldn't have been all that bad uh, relative to other trips. So I think I made a mistake, but the main reason I didn't go was because tickets for the Saturday and Sunday events are really hard to come by. They're really expensive, but it turns out there were enough pop-up signings and events in other spots that it probably would have made it worth my while. I mean, I just talked about the possibility of going to a Ron Artest signing on my latest mailbag. I just didn't see anything announced ahead of time, Uh, but he was at the Mitchell and Ness store. I think he did another signing at another spot as well. Uh, But I didn't know, and I hate operating on assumptions. So, oh well, lesson learned. Uh, So anyway, I watched a lot more All-Star coverage than I normally would have. I'm not going to sit here and try to sell you on the events of the weekend, like the Celebrity Game or the Dunk Contest or anything like that. I'm not going to sit here and bash them either. There's not much point to that. All I'm saying is that the Indiana stuff made it a lot better for me. And then Benedict Matherin winning the Rising Stars MVP and the Pacers team winning the Skills Challenge. Well, that was a nice bonus as well. Speaking of Rising Stars, if you watched any of that coverage, you probably noticed that Panini was the sponsor of that game. In fact, it was their CEO that presented Ben with his trophy, and I think he might have even gotten water poured on him as well. As the guys on the crossover mentioned this week, I think the sponsorship makes sense. After all, rookie cards have really driven this hobby for years. In fact, they even gave out some sort of rookie cards at the event. And um, just for those of you that have players in that set, just know oftentimes giveaways like that can be tough to find after the fact. So if I were you, I would grab them now if if the price isn't too bad uh, because they were uh, given to a lot of non-collectors and those things seem to get pitched or tossed over time. Um, But I'm hoping this Panini partnership leads to some relics from the game somewhere down the road. It seems like a relatively easy opportunity for them to at least get some player-worn stuff, as opposed to the Dick Sporting Goods stuff we've dealt with for almost four years now. I was curious to see the extent of Panini's coverage over the course of the weekend, seen as they were the big sponsor, but, you know, they're losing the license in a couple years as well. If you go to their Instagram, they didn't post a lot of content on their feed just yet, although it is starting to make its way there. I'm assuming it's all going to come later on, but you had to look for a lot of it in their stories, which is unfortunate because that stuff tends to disappear from time to time. They used to archive it and put it in a highlight post. They don't do that for every event now, so it's kind of uh, hit and miss. But similar to some of the other events they've done with football and basketball, it looks like they set up something called the Prism Lounge. And we got some decent content out of that. Sometimes you can use that to get a preview of future products. For example, I saw a video of Shaden Sharp signing cards that looked a lot like the private signings multi-year Panini set that uh, was spread out over the early to mid-2010s. There was a video of Spud Webb opening Photogenic. 
I think Chet Holmgren was signing some sort of on-card set. Couldn't quite tell what it was, but they had him signing them in these frames that were made by Show Your Slabs. And I don't know how long Panini has been doing that, but it seemed like a much better idea than having the cards in stacks on the table like I've seen in the past. That way they can just sign them. They don't have to handle all of them. But uh, And then they had Asia Wilson and Jackie Young signing a bunch of sticker sheets as well, which seems disappointing when they have the actual athlete on hand. But I guess none of the WNBA stuff is hard signed anymore anyway. And those stickers will probably last them a long time. As far as the rest of the weekend goes, I'm not going to talk about every single event. Like I said, uh, I did enjoy the Steph versus Sabrina shoot off. Uh, I'm not really going to talk much about the game itself, aside from the fact that I thought Damian Lillard freezing Tyrese Halliburton out in a home city was kind of lame. Uh, but uh, you can find coverage in a million different spots, though, for the All-Star Game. So that's all I'm going to say about that. But if you're a junkie for basketball history, there were a couple things I saw that I think are worth highlighting. Things that could have easily have got lost in the shuffle. The first was an announcement for a new Oscar Robertson statue at Crispus Attucks High School, uh, and that's in Indianapolis. And the significance being that Oscar captained the first all-black team to win a state championship in any state, and that was back in 1955. They actually repeated in 1956. I know I've said on here before that I think the league has done a so-so job of honoring its former players. Well, we saw Oscar again later in the weekend, right before the game, uh, and it was great to see his involvement in this one as well and the league's involvement in all of this. So I want to give them credit when I think they've done something right as well. Something else I enjoyed from this weekend was an hour-long special that aired Saturday on TNT called Indiana Glory. This was a conversation between three guys that have a lot of history in the state, Larry Bird, Reggie Miller, and Isaiah Thomas. And I was a little surprised when I saw this announced. I don't know exactly where they stand with one another, but I wasn't under the impression that I'd ever see any sort of program like this with Larry and Isaiah. There's definitely some history between the two of them that extends beyond their time on the court, including Larry firing Isaiah after... Isaiah served a few years as coach of the Pacers in the early 2000s. In fact, I talked about that some on this show not too long ago when I featured an Isaiah Thomas Coach's Corner Auto in one of my Mail Day segments. Surprisingly, this did come up on the show. And I wasn't surprised, though, that Isaiah went full Isaiah when addressing this in a number of other situations. He made sure Larry knew he thought that firing him was a mistake. He didn't think he needed to be replaced by Rick Carlisle. And furthermore, he claimed that the brawl in Detroit might not have happened had he been there, which I don't necessarily agree with. I think that team was bound to self-destruct, but that's beside the point. Overall, these guys all spent time working for the Pacers. I think I expected more Pacers coverage. They touched a lot more on the 80s instead, and looking back, that makes more sense, and I thought it turned out really well. Uh, I mentioned Zeke going full Isaiah a minute ago. Look, I still like listening to him even though you have to take everything with a grain of salt. So I really enjoyed that one. Anyway, those are some of my thoughts about all things All-Star Weekend. Like I said, there's a lot of coverage out there already. My goal to start today was to recap things from the perspective of an Indiana sports fan and a basketball card collector. All right, speaking of collecting cards, I did not do a mail segment on last week's episode. So I have a few pieces of mail I'd like to catch you up on today. And they fit the themes of Indiana basketball and basketball history that I've touched on some already. 
And I'm actually going to save one piece for the main segment so I can talk about it in a little more detail. So be sure to stick around for that if you like the historical stuff. The first package I want to talk about today was from a listener named Phil. And I'm not going to name every card, but it was a really nice uh, assortment of Pacers cards from different eras. And then also a J.R. Smith Finals booklet. So, like I said, I'm not going to go through every card, but I know he spent a lot of time piecing all that together. I know he went out of his way to make sure, hey, you know, I know he likes these things. I know he likes the final stuff. Um, So that meant a lot to me. I I know I thanked Phil privately, but wanted to mention the gesture on the show as well. So thanks again for that package, Phil. The second package I want to talk about had a 2021-2022 Panini Chronicles Gala Rookie of Isaiah Jackson, numbered three out of eight. And for those of you that aren't familiar with Gala, it used to be a standalone product, but has since moved to Chronicles. And even though this card is numbered to eight copies, it's considered the base version of the card, making it one of the more rare, if not the rarest Panini base rookie out there right now. And I can't think of another that has a similar configuration or anything close for that matter. Now, seeing as I've made a no non-associated relic rule for my collection, there's not a lot of nice Isaiah Jackson stuff out there, save for Prism Gold or Optic Gold, and anytime one of those pops up, it seems like the price is astronomical. There was another one of these Gala rookies on eBay for a while, but the seller and I were just too far apart. Eventually it sold, and I figured it was unlikely I would ever see another, and yeah, I know I say that about a lot of cards on this show, but for every card that I've said that about, there's probably 25 or so that I truly haven't seen again. So I do mean that when I say that. So anyway, one day Chatri messages me, and you might remember him from when he came on the show. You might know him by his social media handle, which is Wade underscore Zoe. So one day he messages me with a picture of the card, and he said, I found an Isaiah Jackson here in the UK in a weird UK slab. The weird slab he was referring to is MGC, the Majesty Grading Company, which uh, if you'd never heard of that before, well, join the club. I had never heard of that either. And they graded this card in eight. So apparently I looked it up. This is a company from the UK and the slabs have a microchip in them. It talks all about it on the website. It was kind of interesting. Long story short, the seller wasn't asking a lot for this and Chatri was able to middleman the deal and subsequently sent it my way. I've shown it to a few people already. And whenever I show it to them, the usual response is something along the lines of, So you cracked it out of that slab, right? As of right now, I have not. At some point, I I think it's safe to say it probably will be cracked out, but there's a part of me that enjoys having some of these obscure slabs on hand. Uh, Either way, thanks again to Chatri for helping to make that one happen. Okay, the third package I want to talk about had a 2005-2006 Topps Big Game Selective Swatches 101 Logo Man patch of Richard Jefferson, probably not the player you were guessing there. And as I mentioned before, this is a product that I window shopped quite a bit back in 2005. I say window shopped because 17 or 18 year old me was not able to purchase any of these cards. I just saved pictures of them to my computer instead because I still enjoyed looking at them. I I enjoyed the cards. I didn't have to own them to get enjoyment out of them necessarily. I didn't have a choice. Now, This was one of the first accessible products that featured a giant jumbo patch checklist. And there was also a a really nice jumbo patch set in Ultimate Collection the year prior, 
But um, like I said, I felt like this was the more accessible one because Topps Big Game had the in-the-name nameplate cards, the Selective Swatch team logos, and the Selective Swatch logo man set. And I've always kind of said that um, I consider this product to be a sort of precursor to Immaculate. Now, it might have surprised you when you heard that there was a Richard Jefferson card in this male segment. And I kind of surprised myself too. I never set out to shop for a Richard Jefferson card. And there were actually two of them that were listed on eBay at the same time from a seller in Poland, a white jersey logo man and a navy logo man. And I thought the price was really good on both of them. Uh, but I still, I sent an offer out to put some feelers out to see if there was any more wiggle room on the price. It turns out there was, which was even better. So uh, I messaged one of my friends then who is a big Richard Jefferson collector just to know like, hey, I put this offer out there. This is the counter. I think it's pretty realistic. If you want it, it's all you. And he indicated that right now just wasn't a good time for him to be buying the card. So after thinking about it a little more, I decided... I might send this seller another offer just to see, okay, you know, it seems reasonable to me. I don't really need it, but, um, you know, let's see what they can do. And the counter came back and, and I thought it was a good deal. So before long, I ended up buying the card. And I'll tell you, I'm not sure what the future holds for this card. And um, that's not really the way that the mail day segments usually go. They're usually cards I intend on holding for a long time. I will say a lot of the cards I buy like this end up staying in the PC it is nice to have a pre-Panini Game War Logo Man to take to places like the National or some of the big trade nights if needed. I'm thinking it could be something that helps me get a nice Pacers logo down the road. But if nothing else, as I mentioned earlier, it's from a set I really like. And having that in the PC wouldn't be the worst thing in the world either. So I'll try to get a picture of that up on my social media. There is video of it on my YouTube channel as well as some other mail I got that day, including a, a Dalai Lama autograph. Uh, yeah, you heard that right. So if that sounds like something you might be interested in seeing as well, go ahead and check that out on the channel. All right, before I move into today's main segment, I want to remind you that this show is brought to you in part by the good people over at ComC.com, your home for buying, selling, flipping, and grading all the hottest trading cards. And right now they're running an MLB leadoff promo where you can get 30% off all select and elite baseball submissions, valid until March 8th. And by the way, this also stacks with the Fresh Polls program. To learn more about this and other exciting ComC opportunities, head on over to the ComC blog. Okay, and then real quick, some of you have asked me for ways you can help support this show. The easiest way is my eBay affiliate link. And using this link costs you absolutely nothing, just an extra 30 seconds or so of your time, but it helps support the show. To access this link, simply go to waxmuseumpodcast.com, click the eBay logo, shop as planned, so whatever you are going to buy anyway, just click my link first, and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hey everybody, Boston Steve here, the Northeast Correspondent, checking in from the city of a winning basketball team, and you are listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Okay, so the last piece of mail I want to talk about directly inspired the content in today's main segment. It is a Funko Pop of Wilt Chamberlain in his Philadelphia Warriors uniform, and he's holding a piece of paper with the number 100 on it, which is obviously a recreation of the famous photo of him from his 100-point game on March 2nd, 1962. 
And when I opened this package, I had no clue who it was from. And you might have even seen the Instagram post I made where I said that. It turns out it was a gift from Jarrett, Celtic Super Collector on social media. You've heard him on this show several times before. He told me he thought it would go well with a plaque I own that's got a piece of the 100-point floor. And he's absolutely right. So thanks again, Jarrett. Well, and seeing as this is pretty close to that March 2nd anniversary, I thought, you know what, why not talk about that historic game here on the show, and then maybe I can touch on a few notable Wilt cards in the process. So that's what I'm going to do. Now, for those of you that are active on social media, there's been a recent post circulating that claims to have found never-before-seen footage from this game, and several of you have even sent it to me. Unfortunately, people seem to have mixed this up with another YouTube video that's out there, because there is still no known video footage from this game. And I can't realistically see any surfacing in the future either. We were lucky enough to get the audio that surfaced in the late 80s, so we're left trying to learn more about this night from other sources, primarily the people that were there. And if you trust the gate numbers from the night, there were supposedly around 4,000 people in attendance. So, like I said, to learn more, historians have had to track some of those people down. And author Gary Pomerantz did a great job of that with his book titled Wilt 1962, The Night of a Hundred Points in the Dawn of a New Era. And I read that years ago and I have my copy of the house still. I'm going to do my best to talk about the game here, but I recommend checking that book out if you want a more detailed synopsis of that night uh, and maybe even a more accurate account of that night because sometimes Wilt uh, tended to change the details a little bit in his book. I'm not saying he did that on purpose, but some of the stuff that he's written about has been um, kind of debunked after the fact. All right, so I had a good feeling about Pomerantz's book the moment I opened the front cover and saw a collage of 1961 Fleer cards on the inside. Not the whole set, but it featured Knicks and Warriors players that were on the team's rosters at the time. There were, however, two notable omissions for me. The first was Phil Jordan, the Knicks center who was not at the game, hence why he's not included in the front cover. Okay, so a quick edit. As I was going through the editing here, I looked at the book again, and Phil Jordan actually is in the front cover. So I said it's an omission. It's not really, but there's a cool story about this card anyway and about him on this night. So I'm going to let you enjoy that story nonetheless. Just know he was not actually an omission. Sorry, Mr. Pomerantz. But Jordan was not at the game because he was sick at the team's hotel. And I've heard a couple different versions of this story. Either he had the flu or he was a little bit hungover. And little did we know some 30 years later, we'd be wondering the same about a much more famous Jordan. Although I think the last Dan said it was because of the pizza. Back to Phil Jordan. An interesting side note about his 1961 Fleer card. They spelled his last name wrong. Fleer had it as J-O-R-D-A-N, where it should be J-O-R-D-O-N like it's seen on his 57 Tops rookie. And off the top of my head, I, I know Lenny Wilkins' last name is misspelled on his 61 Fleer, too, so maybe Panini is just honoring some of those older sets with all of their errors today. Uh, and obviously, I'm kidding there. The second and most notable 1961 omission inside of Pomerantz's front cover was Wilt's rookie card. And the book had the in-action card, but not the main one. I've talked about Wilt's rookie on here several times before, uh, heading into the summer of 2019, I had some funds set aside, and I wanted to buy a big rookie card, uh, big for me at least, and I narrowed my choice down to either a low-grade 86 Fleer Jordan or a low-grade 61 Wilt rookie. 
I couldn't even tell you what they're worth today or which one has performed better over the course of the last five years, but I chose the Wilt Rookie, and I'm very happy to still own it. I'm not here to tell you what to buy, but if you're going to collect any Wilt Chamberlain cards, I think that's a very important one to own, and, and that's nothing. Uh, that's no new revelation there, me telling you that, hey, a rookie card might actually be important. But one of the main reasons I chose that card over the Jordan is because I felt like there were a lot less of them out there. Because when you go to some of the bigger national shows or even the national, you're likely to see a case or two that's just full of Jordan rookies. And while 61 Fleer cards are still pretty easy to find, you aren't likely to see a case full of wilts at a show anytime soon. There weren't nearly as many made. And that's indicative of the league's popularity, or really lack thereof, at the time. That's part of why these early mainstream sets are so spread out. You had 48 Bowman, 57 Tops, 61 Fleer, and then things finally picked up again with the next set, which didn't come out until 1969. Well, that lack of interest in professional basketball is also one of the reasons that this 100-point game was played at Hershey Sports Arena, which was over 80 miles away from Philadelphia. The Warriors played a few games there that season in an attempt to attract new fans. And I mentioned 4,000 people earlier. It's been documented that a lot of those fans in attendance were probably there to see an exhibition game that took place before this historic game. What was that game? It was a basketball game between players from the Baltimore Colts and the Philadelphia Eagles. That's right, two football teams. And that's the kind of stuff NBA teams were doing to try to sell tickets on a Friday night in the early 60s. So definitely a stark contrast to where the league is today. On top of that, the sports media really didn't care much about this game either. Pomerantz mentions in his book that all the New York writers were in Florida for spring training, and the Warriors publicist handled most of the follow-up for the AP. He also noted that there were only two photographers on site. So all of that kind of sets the tone for the night. The game didn't really mean anything for the standings. The players knew that. For the most part, the fans didn't want to be there, at least not for this basketball game. The media didn't feel like it was important enough to have any real representation there. This was a game that was supposed to just quietly happen and move both teams to the end of their regular season schedule. But the Warriors got off to a really strong start. They led 42-26 at the end of the first. Wilt had 23 points, but even more impressive than that probably is the fact that he went 9-for-9 from the free throw line. Shooting underhanded, mind you, which is a strategy he went back to a number of times. He shot a lot better that way, but as he explained in his autobiography, he never stuck with it because there was just a humiliating aspect about it. He said he didn't want to look like a sissy. There is footage of Wilt shooting underhanded in other games, so if you are interested in seeing that, uh, I would suggest the Wilt Chamberlain archive on YouTube. That's my go-to Wilt channel. And then there are a few Panini cards that picture the underhanded free throw as well, all in the Philadelphia uniform. One of them is a 2009 insert in Rookie and Stars, and another one I know of is Wilt's base card in 2011 Gold Standard, which is numbered to 299. So anyway, free throw shooting played a big part in Wilt's first quarter, and really the game at large. He shot 28 for 32 from the line that night, Apparently, he shot a high percentage from the line the other two times they played in Hershey as well. Pomerantz mentions in his book that the rims were perhaps softer and older and thus more forgiving. I guess that adds to the whole mystique of this happening at Hershey instead of their normal arena. 
for all we know, it, you know, that might have played a role. It might not have happened had they played the game in their normal arena. Well, come halftime, Wilt had 41 points. And that was when Guy Rogers suggested the Warriors just continually feed the ball to Wilt to see how many points he could end up with. And despite the Knicks' best efforts to double and triple team him, and I've even read they quadruple teamed him, and they hacked him, and they did everything they could, Wilt had logged 69 points by the end of the third quarter. This put him really close to the regulation record he had already set of 73 points, and then also the 78 he scored in a triple overtime game. Well, once he passed 80, the crowd and his teammates all wanted him to keep going and shoot for 100, and that's when things got kind of weird. You had the Knicks fouling the other Warriors players to keep the ball out of Wilt's hands, and then they were stalling on the offensive end. You know, forget trying to catch up and win the game. They just wanted to stop Wilt. Around the four-minute mark, the Warriors started fouling the Knicks so that they would shoot their foul shots and they could immediately get the ball back to Wilt. Imagine watching this go back and forth. As much as I wish we had footage from this game, it's probably best that we don't. The last thing we need is J.J. Redick using something like that to try and cancel out Wilt. Anyway, Wilt scored .100 in the last minute of the game. Of course, everyone ran on the court and congratulated him. And then later on, we got the most iconic photo from the evening, which is kind of an impromptu thing, where Wilt sat on a stool and the Warriors PR guy gave him a piece of paper with the number 100 on it. He held it up. Um, And that's why you see guys like Devin Booker and Joel Embiid hold up a piece of paper uh, for a photo after scoring, you know, like 70 points. Now, the Booker one was kind of goofy, too, because the Suns lost the game by 10 points. Um, but it is what it is. And before anyone asks, yes, I do think someone will pass 100 at some point the way things are going. It probably won't be a big man, though. It'll probably be a shooter. Uh, but I digress. Back to that 100-point locker room photo, the inspiration for the Funko Pop that started this segment For as iconic of a photo as it is, it's hard to believe it hasn't shown up on more cards. I would say the most notable is the 1992-93 Upper Deck Basketball Heroes Wilt Chamberlain set. I know Upper Deck also used it for their Epic Milestones insert set in 1998 Century Legends. If either of those interest you, they are both very affordable cards. I think you can grab those on ComC for under 10 bucks. Now, as I wind things down here, I want to talk about a 100-point card that doesn't exist, but should in my opinion, and I think it would be relatively cost-effective for a major manufacturer to make, and that is a game-used floor card. I've thought about trying to make it on my own, I'm just not sure I can do it justice. But back in 2012, the 76ers wanted to do something special to commemorate the 50th anniversary of this game. Their marketing VP discovered that the old Hershey Park court which was made of one-inch thick oak, had been stored in a barn since the early 70s. So they made a deal to acquire the floor, and they cut some of it up into two-inch by two-inch pieces that they then handed out to fans at a March 2012 game against the Warriors. And I own several of those pieces that I purchased on the secondary market. They're not terribly expensive. I even bought one with the intention of cutting it up and trying to make a card out of it. Well, I have no way of cutting a piece of oak that thin, and I took it over to my dad's shop. He has no way of doing that either, and he has about everything you can imagine when it comes to woodworking. So I put the project on hold for now, but I figure one of these companies could make it happen pretty easily, 
if they wanted to. Until then, I will make sure to enjoy the Wilt cards that do exist, that I already have, and I hope you guys will do the same as well. Feel free to post any of yours up on social media. I know there are some great Wilt collectors out there. Shout out to Mike, aka Lakers Forum Gold. Shout out to Alex Connell Collection, who's posted his incredible auto. I know my friend Kirk has some nice Lakers stuff of Wilt as well, and there are plenty of other people out there. I don't, I don't want to exclude anyone. If I have time, I'm going to shoot some video of those Wilt cards in my collection this week and post it up on my YouTube channel, so you might be on the watch for that. All right, well, there you have it. Thanks to Jarrett for sending that Wilt Funko my way and sending me back down some rabbit holes I've been down several times before. Thanks to you guys for letting me dive more into some of the historical stuff. I hope there was enough card talk mixed in there for you. Maybe there was something I talked about today that resonated with you. Feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under at Wax Museum Podcast or X under the handle at Wax Museum PC. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the website for my affiliate links. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. Podcast.